You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, friends, uh, welcome back, those of you who were here last week, and welcome to those who are just joining us, either in person or online, for our brand new sermon series. This is week two, week two of our brand new sermon series entitled Neighborhood Disciples, Neighborhood Disciples. This year, we felt really, really called to uh, engage a very honest conversation on what it's like to live here in suburbia, right? The good, the bad, all that is sort of wrapped up in this very unique context in which we inhabit. You see, uh, we thought that it would be really, really helpful to actually engage in a conversation around what does it mean uh, not only to be a Christian, but what does it mean to be a Christian in a context like this? A context not only that we here in this local part of, you know, Apex, North Carolina inhabit, but that last time statisticians found over 52% of Americans inhabit some sort of suburban context. And so we're going to ask some questions, some really hard questions about, you know, what is it about this context that's aiding in our faith? And what about this context is holding us back in our faith? What about this suburban world in which we inhabit is helping and growing our faith? And what parts of this context are hurting our ability to know Jesus fully? For example, if you weren't here last week, I shared, I said that um, one of the unique challenges of inhabiting a space like this is all of us were here today because in some way, shape, form, or another, we're trying really hard to learn and to adapt the gospel of Jesus to our lives. Meanwhile, there are four other really strong, powerful, loud gospels constantly calling for your attention. If you missed them, here they are. The gospel of suburbia is fourfold. Uh, It's the gospel of convenience. That's a big, powerful voice here in this context. Make things as convenient and as easy and as predictable as you can. That's what life is all about. You also hear a lot of voices explicitly and implicitly saying, uh, calling out for this gospel of abundance, that life is all about more, 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 more. That's where you're going to find happiness. That's where you're going to find meaning. We also are surrounded by the gospel of comfort, this voice that says life needs to be about making sure everything's comfortable, everything's safe, everything's predictable. And fourthly and finally, a really powerful voice here in this context is one that says that life is all about advancement. That if you're not moving, if you're not progressing, if you're not keeping up with where you should be at this stage of your life, your life is without meaning, it's without purpose. And so we're trying really hard to hear Jesus' voice in the midst of these voices clamoring for our devotion and our attention. And so what we're going to do over the course of this sermon series is we're going to burrow into a number of these gospels here in suburbia. We're going to burrow into them and dig into them to really try to do two things. Number one, try to figure out where and how much power they've had over us up until this point. Number two figure out what is it going to take to get out from underneath them. Today, what we're going to do is we're actually going to burrow into the gospel of abundance. I want to dig into that gospel a little bit more today. This message that you and I have received for a very, very long time, 
that true joy, true happiness is found in more. It's this temptation to constantly measure your life on the standard of quantity rather than quality. Surveys found recently uh, that uh, in suburbia, on average, there are more TVs than people in the average household. We're putting them on refrigerators, people. Same study found that the average kid, so this is not family, kid, the average kid owns 234 toys. If those kids are anything like mine, they play with two of them. But don't get it twisted. This is not just a conversation about material possessions, this abundance, this gospel of abundance. It's also a mindset. You and I have been programmed not just to acquire more, but to want to achieve more, experience more, be involved in more. We do this at work. We try to take on as many responsibilities as possible. We do this in our social lives. We try to acquire as many connections and relationships and friendships as possible. We do this even on the times when we shouldn't be, on vacation. My family, just to give you a little sneak peek as to how hard it's to be in a family with me, this is a live shot of the itinerary I created for our last family vacation so that we can make sure to get it all in. (laughs) (laughs) Diane, you and I will be the sinners today. We will be the examples not to follow. It's all about more. It's all about more. And it's leading to this really complicated situation. Because you see, friends, here's how the formula goes. Here's how the formula goes. Any and every place where there's an overabundance, overabundance of things, overabundance of activities, overabundance of opportunities, almost always, here's the human condition, overabundance almost always leads to overcommitment. And then that overcommitment almost always leads to overfunctioning. You're overextended. And now you're functioning beyond your limits. You are functioning beyond what you were actually created and designed to withstand. And then this leads to a particular word that we've heard a lot more these last couple of years. A word that if you've been paying even half attention to our world and to uh, what's going on in our society, a word that is sort of beginning to creep into almost every single one of our lives Overabundance leads to overcommitment, which leads to overfunctioning, which leads to burnout. Yeah, burnout. Now, this word is being used in so many different places that it might be hard to kind of pin down what exactly are we talking about? What exactly do we mean by that? And here's what we mean by that. Here's what burnout is. Burnout is any time and every time you reach a place in your life where you feel dissatisfied or depressed because all that overfunctioning you've been doing, all that doing too much, has left you fatigued, overextended, and anxious. And you're dissatisfied and you're depressed because if you're fatigued, you have no energy. If you're overextended, you have no meaning and purpose, right? If you're overextended, you're just, you're not investing your life in anything. You're just sort of dabbling a little bit of yourself in 50 things. So you're not actually feeling a lot of meaning or purpose in what you're doing. 
you're anxious. You have little to no joy in what you're doing or how you're living. And this is all over the place, man. This is all over the place. It's in the workplace. So we found this in a study last year that nearly three out of four workers in America said that they felt burnout on a regular to semi-regular basis. But it goes beyond just work. Some of you are like, this totally applies to my job, this totally applies to my career, but others of you feel burnout in different ways. You feel burnout in parenting, you feel a, a burnout in your home life. And this is what Google found. Google found that the number of searches in relation to burnout, some form of burnout with work or with life or with relationship or parenting, has gone up in the last three years by 221%. It looks like this. So they, uh, the chart, they've actually been keeping track of this word in its usage ever since 2004. And you can see, it like made a little blip there, and then it made a little start incline, and then it just shot up in these last couple of years. Which, by the way, it's really interesting to think about the culprit of all of this, or a really, really important observation about the, one of the culprits. Do you want to know, so right there, see by like 2008, see where it starts to climb? You want to know what was invented around then? It's probably in your pocket or it's in your purse. The iPhone arrived in 2007 and with it came an endless amount of access to more. And now it's killing us. Now you're sitting there thinking, some of you are like this, you're like, you're, okay, pump the brakes a little bit. Like, it ain't killing me, okay? Like, that's a little, like, that's a little melodramatic. Like, it's not killing me. It's just harming me and suffocating me. But it's not like killing me. Like, it's not that bad, and it's a lot. I know it's a lot of responsibility, and it's a lot of things I've sort of committed to and overextended myself, but, like, I can handle it. Like, I got it. Or, like, I'm just going to just give me a minute, and I'm going to sort of make my way through this, and then I'll be fine on the other side once I get into a new season. Like, I'll be okay. I can manage this. That's fine. Here's my question. Do you want to? Is this the way you want to live? Is this the person you want to be? And some of you are like, yeah, great. Okay, this sermon's not for you. <laughs> some of you, you felt this condition of suburbia for a long time. And maybe it got better for a little bit, but now it's back with full force. Or maybe it's okay now, but you're coming out of a season where it was really bad. And for you... I want to seek answers to two questions today. Number one, what does Scripture have to teach us about this condition? What does the Bible have to teach us about this condition of living beyond our limits, over-functioning, over-extending ourselves? And number two, is there a different way? So, let's dig in. If you have your Bibles with you or your smart devices and you want to follow along, go ahead and return back to Colossians chapter 3, the passage we're going to be camped out in today. And I do want to uh, quiet uh, some of the doubters that may be sort of like in your brain, you're like, what does the 
Bible have to teach about this? Like, you just said burnout showed up like three years ago or something like that. Like, what does Scripture have to teach about this? They didn't know nothing about no burnout. And while the term might be new, baby, that condition, oh, it's been in the water ever since the beginning. Just take a look at a couple examples. So uh, in Numbers chapter 11, we get a very, very classic, very, very descriptive example of burnout in the person of Moses. Moses, the one who led the people out of Israel, he leads the people uh, through the Red Sea. He leads them to the promised land. But while en route, he's going through the wilderness. He's got a lot of backseat leaders who are complaining and griping because it's hot. They're thirsty. They hate the food, the, the food that they're serving on this flight. And so they're yelling at him all the time, and they're complaining all the time. So skip down right to the middle, and he says this. He's, this is Moses talking to God. Why haven't I found favor in your eyes? For you have placed the burden of all these people on me. I can't bear this people on my own. It's too heavy. If you're going to treat me like this, please, for the love of God, kill me. This is none other than one of the heroes of our faith, Moses, everyone. We also see this show up in 1 Kings chapter 19, another example of this, another hero of our faith, Elijah. Elijah was given a very difficult task of to sort of confront false gods during that time and to sort of demonstrate that the God of Israel was the one true God. And so he has this marvelous, amazing moment on Mount Carmel where he shows the power and majesty of God only to be responded with. So he thinks, this is it, finally, I'm going to get some people who are following me, finally going to get some people who are sort of back in my cause. And they respond by, oh, I don't know, trying to kill him. And so it says that he walked off the path, stood on a tree for a minute, and right there in the middle, he longed for his own death. It's more than enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He's burnt out. And even Jesus knew a little something about this. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, he talks about how life unfolds for so many of us, and he warns us. He warns us. He says, listen, like, think of, think of my presence in your life like a, like a seed. Like, I'm going to throw things. I'm going to speak things to your life. I'm going to try to do things in your life. But if you're not careful, your surroundings can choke out what I'm doing in your life. And he gives this example in the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, he says this. He says that he's talking about there's a seed. He gives this analogy of the seed falling amongst thorns. He says, sometimes I'm going to do something in someone's life, but it's going to be like a seed falling amongst thorns. Someone who hears the word, they're excited. They came to church, feel like God's doing something new. God's rejuvenating something inside of them. But very, very quickly, what happened? The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choked it out. If you're not careful, Jesus says, burnout can choke out the very thing, the very new thing I'm trying to do in you. And that brings us to our passage for today. Now we get back to Colossians chapter 3. And friends, this is precisely why Paul ends his letter to the Colossians the way that he does. This is actually a typical custom of Paul. Whenever Paul would write letters to Galatians, and to the Galatians, to the Philippians, to all these folks, he would almost always end, like one of the last chapters, or the last, second to last chapter would almost be this like summary of, okay, if you don't forget everything I said, if you forget everything that I told you, remember these key things, that this is what the Christian life is all 
about. The context back in, a couple thousand years ago, yes. Was it very different than ours? Yes. Was it very, were their struggles slightly different than ours? Yes. But these people that Paul is writing to, they knew the pull. They knew the stress of having to deal with a marriage life or a relationship life and a friendship life and a work life and a faith life. They knew what it was like to spin all those plates at the same time. And so what he says here in Colossians chapter 3 is, amidst all those things competing and clamoring for your attention, don't forget who you're called to be. You're called to be people of love. You're called to be people of forgiveness. You're called to be people of unity. And then he says this in verse 17. He says, whatever you do, however you live, just please make sure in speech or in action, do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul is doing here is he's giving them a mission statement. He's saying, start asking yourself this question. Of everything you do, everything you spend time, energy, and attention on, is God in this or not? Is God in this or not? He's giving them a filter and saying, you and I as Christians are called to almost unfairly and disproportionately invest our lives in the things that do that over and against all the other things clamoring and calling for your attention and your devotion. And so, friends, this is precisely why. This is precisely why last week, if you missed it, if you missed it, uh, we handed these out. So, and they're in the lobby, by the way, as you leave here today, if you didn't snag one of these. One of the things we made available to you as we start this new year together are these Families on Mission manuals. And what this is, is it's a how-to manual, super practical, step-by-step, designed to help you as an individual or as a couple or as a family come up with your own mission statement. Figure out who it is you're going to be. What are you going to be about by the way, if you have examples of this, like if you come up with some drafts of these sentiment, we'd love to see them. Here's mine. I shared this last week. Here's a little sampling of our draft of where we're at. We're still sort of working through it, and we're still trying to sort of come up with some, make it, make it full and make it the one we want it to be. But right now, the Meyer family, this is who we want to be. As we've had conversations, we want to be a family that follows Jesus into a life of growth, fun, friendship, generosity, and servanthood. And the gift that this offers to us, maybe you're not into mission statements and all that. That's fine. But the gift that this offers us is it helps us understand who we're going to be and what we're going to be about so that we now know what are the things we're going to do and what are the things that don't align with this at all. So we're not going to invest time, energy, money, and all of that into it, no matter how loud the voices are. You see, this is a relatively new journey for our family. We've been doing this for the last couple of months, like really trying to take serious this call to figure out, God, who have you called us to be, and how do we make sure as much time and energy is pushed and pulled into that as opposed to all the other things calling for our attention? This is a relatively new journey for our family, but this is a journey I've been on for a little bit longer, a little bit longer. For those of you who are new here to our church, if you're new here to uh, the peak, you might not have been around last summer when this happened. But last summer, uh, I took my very first sabbatical. I was gone for five weeks, and really, uh, the purposes uh, were twofold. Number one, I wanted to take up river dancing. And number two, I'm just kidding. Okay, some of you were like, oh, yeah, well, I, th- I think that. That's true. Uh, number two, <laughs> I took sabbatical. 
because I realized about this time last year that even before COVID, I had been redlining for a lot of my life. I'm not a car person, so like I don't really know much about this analogy, but redlining is apparently when your car is like right at the like max level of RPMs before your engine blows up. If you need any more information about that analogy, you're going to have to ask someone else. But um, that's my life was there most of the time. Most of the time, even before COVID, it was there. I was always trying to do as much as I could all the time. And I'm just going to be honest with you. About a year and a half ago, it got so bad that it got to a place where for the first time ever in my pastoral career, I contemplated leaving this work. It's the first time that thought had ever crossed my mind. I thought, maybe, maybe I'm not supposed to, maybe I can't do this. So part of what that sabbatical was designed to do was it was meant to be a space for me to think through what, not, not what I'm going to do, but how I'm going to do it. Again, this was a really unnerving experience for me a year and a half ago because up until that point, I had never envisioned my future doing anything else. I got no other marketable skills. Like, I can't go sell shoes or something. Like, I mean, there's, nothing, there's nothing else out there for me to do. And so when I reached my sabbatical, I said, I'm going to figure out. I'm not leaving. I'm going to figure out not what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out a different way to do it. And so what I received in and through that experience was a word that now became my word for 2023. You ever seen, like, these Instagram influencers who are like, anybody, what's your word for the new year? What's your, what's, what journey are you going to go on personally? Let's talk about it. Um, so my word for 2023 is simplicity. Simplicity. Don't you just love that journey for me? <laughs> I've decided that this season is going to be one where I drastically simplify my life only to the things that matter most to me. And I'm very early in this journey, but you want to know what I've found already? I've already found that there's actually way more abundance in simplicity than there is in that overextended, overburdened, overcommitted life. And daggum, man, we don't talk about that enough. We don't talk about that enough, especially in church. It's so, we, always get, we get this sort of bad rap for always talking about the things you can't do, the cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus. And that's real. I'm not setting that aside. That's real. However, we don't spend enough time talking about the things that you will gain when you leave that stuff behind. Paul talks about this. He says that I now, when I, when I compare my life to how I used to do it and now how I'm doing it, I count all the things that I lost as gain. It's like not even a, it's like doesn't even measure up. The things that I've gained compared to what I've lost, no contest. And so this question right here, this is the question that I want us to start asking of our lives. Not, not what might what I lose, but what might I gain if I dared to set out and say, you know what, I'm going to try it, Jesus. I'm going to try to live a more simplified, a more mission-centered 
life. And some of you are here today and you're like, I'm into that. Like, I'm kind of, I want to hear more about this. Like, I, I just need a little bit more convincing. I don't know if I can convince you, but here's what I can do. I can share with you what I've learned on the journey so far, what I've gained so far on this journey. The first is control. The very first thing that you will gain or regain when you opt to live a simplified, mission-centered life is you actually regain control over your life. You realize how long you've been living according to, we talked about this last week, someone else's script for your life, someone else's expectations of your life, someone else taught you this is where happiness is found. You learn, holy cow, I have made so many decisions And I didn't even know, like subconsciously, it was based off of someone else's narrative for who I was supposed to be. But when you actually opt to live a simplified, mission-centered life, you regain control over who you are and where you're going. But here's the catch. (laughs) Here's the catch. What I warn people about, anybody and everybody who's like, yeah, I like... I want that too. Like, I want that to be my life, like, more flexible and more simple. Like, I want all that for me. I always warn them. I say, that's fine. That's great. Just be prepared to tick a lot of people off. I'm serious about this. You want to live a more simplified life? Be prepared to disappoint a crap ton of people. Be prepared to let a lot of people down. Why? Because in order to live a simplified and more mission-centered life, you got to get real comfortable real quick saying no. In fact, you're going to end up finding yourself in a place where you say no almost like 10 times as much as you say yes. And then you begin to realize really quickly in this conversation why nobody does it. It takes freaking guts to pick a path for your life then defend it when people come harassing you for it. In another life, I think instead of being a preacher, I would have been a member of a boy band. I don't, that wasn't meant for laughter. That was just a sort of sharing. So, <laughs> Anyways, um, that's, why, that's why I've always loved Sean Mendez. Sean Mendez. Mm. I feel like objectively, like this is like a beautiful human being. I feel like we can all just sort of connect on that level. Anyway, love Sean Mendez, and I loved him even more last fall. You see, last fall, some of you saw the story, maybe some of you didn't. Sean Mendez got on tour, and he realized about a little bit into the tour that his life was crazy out of balance. He was becoming depressed, he was becoming anxious, and so that dude canceled the rest of his North American tour. And listen, I'm not saying everything's about money, but I'm just going to, let's just, we need to sit with this for a minute. Does anyone have any idea how much Shawn Mendes was due to make through this tour? I can't say it. $90 million. Again, there's a big part of me that was like, let me call the publicist and say, I'll do it. 
I'll sub in. I'm half the talent, so I'll take half the price. That's fine. And I won't really be able to make up for it with my vocal ability, but maybe I'll do some, like, enthusiastic dance moves. And, like, maybe people will really enjoy that, and that's worth $45 million. I will do that. I'll take half. I'll take the cut. It takes guts to realize your life is headed in a direction you don't want it to go, and then you get out of the lane. Why there's only been like a handful of celebrities who have actually done it. I like went on a deep dive, and this is a couple more, a couple more. Maybe you knew, maybe you didn't know, who left fame altogether, sometimes at the height of their career, because they were finding that life in this lane was out of balance, it was out of character, and they were becoming someone they didn't want to become. The question for you is do you and I have enough guts to do the same? So the first thing that you'll find if you dare to live a life of simplicity and mission is a life of control. You'll regain control. The second thing that you'll gain, so far I've found, is you'll gain a life of rest. You'll regain rest. You'll regain fun and enjoyment in your life. Friends, one of the things that we need to extrapolate from the Ten Commandments is that very early on in the Christian story, by God making Sabbath one of the Ten Commandments, God was saying to humanity, I have built you and designed you in such a way where you and I need rest. You need time and space. You need margins in your calendar where you can actually just be. We resist that so much. Earlier this week, uh, we had the opportunity to celebrate my son. Uh, this was his sixth birthday. Here's a picture of us at his birthday. Um, amongst all of his birthday wishes, he says, I want to take no serious pictures. We're like, okay, that's a weird request, but okay, fine. So we have no serious ones. This is it. This is it. And so my son's there on the right. His name is Everett. And those of you who've never interacted with him before or whatever, so uh, Everett is on the Enneagram, he's a seven. He's a seven. Now, some of you are like, I don't know, people have been talking about this Enneagram thing. I don't understand what this means. Hold tight. In Lent, we're going to do a sermon series that sort of introduces you to the Enneagram, so stay tuned there. But on the Enneagram, Everett is a seven. And what a seven is, is an enthusiast, okay? An enthusiast. Here's what that means. In a world of people who constantly ask the question of why, my son asks, why not? <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm sorry, you can't have candy for breakfast. Why not? Uh, you actually can't jump off of the roof onto our trampoline. Why not? No, you cannot drive my car. Why not? I don't know. You just can't. <laughs> and so Marie and I have this conversation about him all the time that if we're not careful, one of the temptations, one of the urges to react to him is if we're not careful, one of the temptations we have is to squash it. Why? Because why not people are not convenient. They're certainly not the people you want around when you're trying to get like in the productivity sort of space, right? Great for creativity. But we have this conversation on the regular because we don't want to fall into that temptation. Because what we've begun to understand about our son 
is that Everett and every why not person sent to us is sent to us by God. Sent to us by God to remember that if you're not careful and if you're not mindful of the impact and influence this suburban mindset can put on you, if you're not paying attention, you will wake up one day and you will find out that you consumed a life rather than enjoyed it. You'll wake up one day and you'll realize that you just spent all of your time using other people and using other experiences instead of stopping and savoring them. You'll wake up one day and you'll learn that you did a really good job performing a life instead of actually living one. So friends, if you don't have why not people in your life, find them. Find them fast. The third and final thing that I think you'll find if you dare, if you're willing to opt for a more simplified, a more mission-centered life, it's not just control, it's not just rest, but you'll actually find healing. You'll find healing now, that sounds kind of confusing at first blush. Like, you hear that and you go, oh, I actually didn't think that was the third thing you were going to say, that I was going to gain that from a life of simplicity, a life of healing. That's kind of weird. And I'll explain. You see, what I know of my own life is that one of my favorite tools that I use to distract myself and distract everyone else from what's really wrong with my life is busyness. It's my favorite go-to tool. The more busy I am, the less I have to think about what's actually going on in my life. And so maybe for you, this is a mistake in your life that you regret and you carry a lot of shame about. Or maybe for you, it's an addiction or a destructive habit. Maybe for you, it's an insecurity that you've been carrying around ever since adolescence. I don't know. But busyness is good at distracting you and everyone else from the thing that's actually wrong. Probably the best-known example of this, uh, this word, overcompensation, is this. Whenever you drive up to a red light and you see this, what's the first thing you think of? <laughs> now, this is church. It could be compensating for a lot of things. So we're just going to move on. We're going to move past it, okay? But what we see when we see this is someone who's trying really hard to find external things to distract you, to shield you from seeing what's really wrong, what I'm really afraid of. And you can make fun of that dude all you want. You're probably going to pass him on the way home today. Anyway, you can make fun of him all you want, but here's the reality. What I've found is that how this dude looks to me is how I must look to God whenever I walk around touting about how busy I am. I'm sorry to break it to you, but you don't look cool bragging about how little sleep you get, how overextended you are, how overcommitted you are. A recent study found that most parents actually don't have time to read a bedtime story to their children. Like, that's not, you don't look cool. We don't look cool doing that. You know what we look like? That dude. We look like people who are desperately trying to fill our lives with so many things so that we don't have to actually be confronted by the thing that actually needs healing. 
needs wholeness. And so it's a two-part question. Number one, what are you running from? What are you hiding from? And number two, and this is the real question, are you willing to slow down long enough to be confronted by it? Are you and I bold, brave enough to turn the volume down on your life long enough for Jesus to actually heal what's broken? And I'll close here. I'm going to stick with this analogy for just one more moment, this analogy of volume. I did some, I read an article last week that straight up blew my mind. Blew my mind. Here it is. So I read this article that there's actually a laboratory in Minnesota. It's called Orfield Library. And in Minnesota, there is a room that's been created, and it's the quietest place on earth. Have you heard of this before? So this is a sound chamber in Orfield Laboratory. It's the quietest place on earth. It registers at negative nine decibels. I don't even know what that means. How is there negative sound? I don't, seriously, I was having like an existential crisis. I was like, if there's negatives, what's the, eh. Anyway, they normally use this room to test products. They put products in it to test or whatever, which again, I don't understand that either. But the other thing that they did was they tested, what would it be like for a human being to enter this room? And the dude lasted 45 minutes before experiencing hallucinations and psychotic episodes. What does it say about the world we live in where the noise and the busyness keeps us sane and the quiet stillness makes us crazy? What does it mean that this is normal? Furthermore, and this is the real question behind the question, what does it mean for our faith that we worship a God who, amidst that reality, refuses to get into a shouting match, refuses to get into a, a game where he's going to be screaming for your attention? What does First Kings teach us? It teaches us that, friends, you are here and you follow a God, you worship a God, you are searching for a God who don't speak in the thunder, in the earthquake, in the lightning, but in a really still, small voice. What it means is what the Apostle John taught us, that, friends, the only path, the only path, to more of him is less of all this. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.